0: Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not, what the, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seat in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called Teacher, for you have one Teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it, and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne, and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean out the side of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like the whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves for the righteous, and you say... If we lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all of this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm into this reading.
1: Well, I heard a line recently that captured an idea I thought quite perfectly. Have you heard the expression, did you spot the elephant in the room? Who said that one? Did you spot the elephant in the room?
0: Well,
1: it's a way of acknowledging that there is a massive issue that's taking up plenty of space, which people sort of know about, but they're doing their best to tiptoe around and avoid my father gave me permission to tell you this little story. Uh, for example, him and some friends took a trip to Tasmania and on their way down they, they travelled on the boat, the Abel Tasman. All was well except they, they lost their car on the decks. Uh, the decks are pretty special, they can go up and down. Uh, and so in the, as I was trying to find their car, they bumped into the captain of the ship and he kindly obliged to give them some directions. Unfortunately, as they went upstairs and downstairs, the levels that their car was on kept changing as well. And what made it more embarrassing, apart from losing the car, was that they kept on bumping into the captain. He'd already given directions twice now. And then finally, on the third walk past the captain, with both parties now hitting their heads down, feeling about embarrassed about one guy's directions didn't kind of work and the others couldn't follow them, uh, one of the guys, which was my dad, turns and uh, tries to make this meeting look a little bit more intentional. And so as he uh, walks up to the captain this time, he says, uh, I'm sorry, captain, but um, I just forgot to check with you. What's the actual displacement of this vessel? <laughs> and so if you know anything about ships, uh, they've got a certain level of displacement. And uh, the idea here is, that's a really important question to ask, isn't it, to get to the bottom of when you've lost your car. You can see uh, there they are losing their vehicle and someone's having a conversation about the displacement of this vessel. That's just what they need right now. But this is an example of spotting the elephant. See, it's, it's uh, it, the displacement of the vessel's got nothing to do with anything. Um, but they're not really kind of approaching the big ticket item, which is where is the car. And I think that's what we see today in today's passage. Metaphorically speaking, Jesus is spotting the elephant. While the religious establishment is busy making rules and regulations, adding more and more customs, Jesus spots the elephant in the room and he names the real issues that these people are trying to deceive themselves about and that they're tiptoeing around. These are the issues that they don't want to know about, but Jesus names them and points them out. And we see him begin this uh, in verses 1 to 12 where he calls the leaders to account. If you're following on there, we find that the leaders aren't helping people on their walk with the Lord. Although they could read and write, which is a lot of what the population couldn't do, uh, they had a responsibility to teach the people. But what we find is they were butchering their job in the way that they did it. We pick that up in verse uh, 1 of 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus reminds the people that the leaders Have an important role. They sit in Moses' seat, which means they're teaching the law of God to the people and explaining out how they should live, describing God's way of living. But the language that Jesus uses in this little section seems to be a bit tongue in cheek. He's saying, So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. It's almost like he's saying, Well, obey them if you must. But whatever you do, don't do what they do. They don't practice what they preach. The reason why I think he's saying it a bit tongue-in-cheek when he says, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, is because in this entire chapter, Jesus is actually teaching against their example and following what they actually say as well. The problem is they love their traditions more than the commands of God. Their traditions of how to obey God are things that just grow up and keep gaining more and more regulations, like the tax laws that seem to get bigger and bigger each year. I remember when the GST was introduced, people complained that they were doing the work of treasury or the treasury, and they um, had to do the GST calculations and collect their money. Well, that seems to be the sort of thing that's going on here. These Pharisees keep on adding this oral law and laying it on the people's consciences, and it loads them up. So they are getting weighed down that doesn't seem to be the spirit of what God wants. We also see the problem with the leaders here is that they are characterized not so much with humility, but they like to big note themselves. We see that in five verses, uh, verse 5 to 12. Everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces, and to have men call them Rabbi. But you are not to be called Rabbi, for you have only one Master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called Teacher, for you have one Teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, these uh, phylacteries are not a term that we use much in our society, the, the phylactery. Uh, there were little boxes that you could keep um, scripture verses in, uh, and probably um, prayers and things like that. And it might have been a helpful way to people to remember uh, God's word and what it said. But when they were worn, you could wear them in a way that uh, that had a low profile, or you could really make them stand out like a beacon. You could make the bands wide and decorate them, uh, and do it to draw attention to yourself, which seems to be what they're keen to do. They also liked special titles, didn't they? Um, it's interesting how some things don't seem to have changed over time, do they? Uh I was having a joke earlier with Scott. I'm not actually ordained at this stage of my game, so I'm not even a reverend or anything like that. Um, but this is a it's a funny thing, isn't it, when people give themselves titles? Jesus is here teaching against, you know, taking on titles, uh, and yet even our Christian establishment has things like right reverend and canon, all those big guns and that kind of thing. Uh, but Jesus is saying that's actually moving away from uh, treating others like brothers. As he said, you've only got one master, And you are all brothers. By starting to take down this line of titles, you start to move away from treating each other like brothers. And again, they're keen on these special places, aren't they, of where they can sit? They like the places of honour. It's all about them. It's all about, you know, how spiritual they look. But Jesus is drawing us back to uh, the essence of how we should live as God's people when he says that. Greatness is bound up with service and humility. And these people are really, uh, you've got the wrong end of the stick. Well, Jesus tells us these things because uh, he cares. He actually cares that people love God and live God's way. And he lays down a challenge for leaders to lead by example. And so it's good for me to um, read verses like these ones, particularly... Uh, me and the other elders of our church and recognize that Jesus calls the leaders to account during his time but the sense of Jesus' words uh, is timeless. There's a challenge from Jesus' words to the leaders of our time as well. Particularly when he talks about these Pharisees not practicing what they preach. Well there's a good challenge for me isn't it? Do I practice what I preach? That's a very good question you know, to wrestle with. Those of you who are parents as well um, will know that that's something you might get confronted with as well. And if you'd like to, you have the option as brothers and sisters in Christ to give me your best shot about whether you think I am practising what I preach or not. Preferably do it after this talk. I'd rather not feel to many uh, comments right now. But I must say, I'm not so proud that I can't face up to times when I've made mistakes. I don't always like facing up to the times when I've made mistakes, but I tend to think it's wiser to accept that fact when we make mistakes and to make some changes. And I think that's what's important to our Lord Jesus. It's it's more important to him that we repent and change, certainly that I repent and change, if I don't practice what I preach. And that's far more important than my little self-esteem. There is a reference that talks about uh, the, uh, the nature of leadership and how it will be scrutinised more carefully. And it's in James chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. James says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Well, who's doing the judging in that verse? Well, certainly God does. God will judge his leaders. And I'll have to give an account for my life and my words but presumably um, other people will judge me as well. And then he adds that we all stumble in many ways. Now for the good news. The good news is that this is not all about me, is it? This passage is just not all about me. Because the reality is that we all have a responsibility to God and to each other. We just read about that, how Jesus says, we've got one master and you are all brothers. Peter, in uh, First Peter, reminds us that as we come to Jesus, we come to be part of God's family. And we're described as a royal priesthood. That's what the youth group's been looking at on Friday nights, that we are a, a royal priesthood. We have access to God. We can talk to God in prayer. That's why when we pray at this service, we can all pray together. It's not I pray such and such, it's we pray and you say amen. Because the reality is I'm no closer to God than any one of you You're just as close to God as I am if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour as well. And so as God's people, you also ought to feel the weight of these verses as well. Do you practice what you preach? In the leadership that you have in life in various ways, where God's given you responsibilities, do you practice what you preach? And if you're not, well then the path of faith and repentance is open to you as well. But I must say, one of the things that's far easier to do, uh, rather than look to ourselves in the areas that we need to change, it's a lot easier for us to take the heat, of our, heat off ourselves and to blame other people, isn't it? It's much easier not to look at our own shortcomings and uh, not spot the elephant in our rooms. And it's a lot easier to cut other people down to size, to blame someone else, or to shame someone else. Because if we shame people, we put out the eyes of people who might want to be bringing us to account. That's a much easier thing to do, isn't it? And that takes the heat off us. But the challenge from Jesus about greatness in God's kingdom is that greatness in God's kingdom is not characterised by brutality and shaming. It's actually characterised by humility uh, and looking to our own shortcomings first and making changes ourselves. That's That's the right approach. Well, in the next few verses that follow, from verses 13 to 36, we have seven woe statements. Uh, numbers have a significance and symbolism beyond themselves in the Bible, and the number of seven represents a number of completeness. And here is Jesus' assessment of the complete corruption of the leadership during his time. We learn that Pharisees are people who try hard, but they live in the wrong way. In the first instance, they lead people in the wrong direction. Pick that up in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. Bang. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. We see that they have a zeal. They are are keen, but it's almost keen but clueless. They're concerned with the letter of the law but not with the spirit of the law. In the Bible, like the chapter 6, verse 8, we're told that the Lord requires that we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God as our God. That's the, the big deal. That's what we should be doing. But these people, they're keen on the letter of the law and not the spirit. If people were to follow their path, they wouldn't be entering the kingdom of heaven. These people aren't entering it. They'd be actually leading away from living God's way. So Jesus says, you're not doing a very good job. Secondly, they are passionate but misguided. We see that in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. They're passionate it seems about making converts and uh, changing other people but only to uh, watch their convert follow their example and really spin off into space like a golf ball that's been sliced and pinged off into the bushes, never to be seen again. That doesn't result in a lot of fruit. Thirdly, they've got the wrong kind of zeal. We see that in 16 to 22. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. In this section, Jesus is actually winding them up. He's pointing them out that when they're taking their oaths, they're actually getting things around the wrong way. They're valuing the gold above the temple, and the gift above the altar, and they seem to be placing a higher value on the things that they've brought in um, into God's presence, rather than on God's presence itself. But the reason why they're they're doing this kind of thing is because they're attaching their oaths to these these kinds of things. They're attaching it to the gold or to the gift on the altar, and it's just a way of them trying to get out of uh, of making a promise or keeping a promise. It's like kids when they say something and then they say, oh, "I crossed my fingers," so you know it's not really binding. What I have to say. And Jesus twice in this section tells them that they're blind. Verse 17, you, actually verse 16. You blind guides. Verse 17. You blind fools. They're busy playing this tricky version of cross the fingers game but they can't spot the elephant in the room. Did you spot the elephant? It's the big issue called God calls his people not to give a false testimony. That's the big topic they're missing. God's keen on people telling the truth and being honest, but they're deceiving themselves about what's really important. It's about playing games, about whether their oath's binding or not. And so they deceive themselves about what the real important issue is. I just want to play games. And they do this again in the next section, verse 23 and 24, where they neglect the more important matters. Verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Reminds me of a time when uh, my son Ross won a gift voucher at a fishing competition and we redeemed the voucher at W and bought him a waiting pool. We got home, I thought it was a pretty good price for the waiting pool by the way, until we opened the box and we'd realised that we'd only bought the cover for a waiting pool. So we so missed out that year. Well these people get 10 out of 10 for tithing their little garden herbs uh, but they're missing the big ticket items of justice, mercy and faithfulness like in the same way that we missed it in the swimming pool. we have got the lid, we have got the pool. And so here again they're, they're thinking they've got the thing stitched up and they're focusing on the right thing but in actual fact they're missing the picture. Point five is they cover up greed and self-indulgence and prefer outward appearance over substance. Up in verse 25: Why do you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence? Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside also will be clean. Why do you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Have you ever seen anybody, when they're doing the washing up, take a cup and just wash the outside of it and put it in the dish-draining tray? Have you ever seen anybody do that? Of course not. Whenever you do the washing up, you, of course you wash the inside of the cup and get the milk scum or whatever is on it, and then you stick it on the dish tray. Right? Even if you don't scrub the outside too much. Jesus is laughing at him here. He's saying, you guys, you know what you do? You just clean the outside of the cup. You don't even clean the inside of the cup. This is just good, strong language to show how ridiculous they are being when they're concerned with these outward appearances. And so we get this picture that on the outside... Things look fine and dandy on their lives or in their families. But when we lift the lid on their life, we see that actually it's a big mess. And Jesus doesn't apologise for any of this straight talk. These are what the Proverbs call wounds from a friend which can be trusted. He's giving them a taste of their own porridge. They've been giving him a hard time with their questions and now he's giving them a taste of their own porridge. And this is an example of the tough love from Jesus where he takes a stand against a deceitful and an immature way of life. And he doesn't diminish the seriousness of sin, does he? He doesn't make excuses for it, blame their family background or something like that. Instead, he confronts it and he names sin for what it is and he calls them to turn from it. The problem with this group of leaders at this time is that they are standing in a long stream of people who have been rejecting God's prophets and those people who God has sent to call people back to faithfulness to God. Jesus has already alluded to that a bit with the parable of the tenants which Scott's preached on in the past. And so what we see with this generation is that they actually stand on the shoulders of giants. They stand on the shoulders of those people who have already killed the prophets. And we see that being raised in the next section in 29-36. to Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of sin, of the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men, and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify; others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that's been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom he murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Now, these people aren't really the ones who did kill the prophets, are they? They weren't around when those prophets earlier were there. Uh, The kings were tended to be responsible for who got executed. But certainly they could reject God's people. And these Pharisees and teachers of the law have already rejected John the Baptist. They're about to crucify Jesus and reject him as their Messiah. And then subsequently he's already told about how other people will be sent uh, only to be killed as well and crucified. And pretty soon in Acts we'll see how Stephen gets stoned as one of those people. How could these people move to such a state where they, they're they given the, the very law of God to handle carefully and pass on to the people and they've got themselves into a, a position, they've painted themselves into a corner where they're being obsessed with minutiae uh, instead of the essence of how God calls us to live. How could it happen that way? Well, we find out that the priests are the ones who originally had the role of teaching the law But later on, scribes, people who became good at recording and counting, um, also took on a role as teaching in the law as well. And the Pharisees were a group that grew up after the time of uh, Antiochus, Epiphanes, persecuted the Jews, and probably as part of a group of people who were keen to love God and live his way and encourage each other to look forward to the resurrection of the dead uh to be careful about keeping God's law this group grew up being very careful about god's law and not all pharisees were were shocking we see that nicodemus is actually uh, a faithful kind of pharisee you got but they kept this oral tradition going in order to stop them breaking any one of the laws of god they they built like a type of fence or a boundary around the commands of god for example the sabbath law don't yeah, break the sabbath keep the sabbath well, they had a whole series of rules which measured, you know, how much they shouldn't exert themselves on a particular day. Uh, you couldn't walk certain distances and if you carried anything, you could only carry it inside your house and drop it out a window. Too bad for the person who picked it up outside the window. They were, they were breaking the Sabbath, but the person inside wasn't. These kinds of rules and regulations became an attempt to put a fence around breaking any of God's laws, but things got out of control. And it just took on time and a reluctance to reform their ways and make changes, and soon they found themselves with a zeal to get obsessed with the letter of the law rather than a zeal to love God. Well, could we do the same? That happened to us. I suppose the answer is that the human heart, in the first instance, hasn't changed. Our hearts can get deceived as well. We can uh, get caught up with things that we think might be important, but in a lot of ways they might be very little things compared to the big things. And the difference between us and these people is probably what we'll do next. Uh, what did they do next? Did they listen to what Jesus said? Did they turn back to him after he's given them this big rebuke? Well, what we find out in the next section is they, they reject their rescuer. We'll see that in 23 verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In 24 verse 1 we find that Jesus left the temple. The image of this mother hen protecting its chicks is quite a nice one that Jesus takes to describe how a mother hen can protect the chicks from the elements. In some cases, when there's uh, been a fire, a mother hen has been known to protect the chicks, and when the fire has done its worst, even if the mother hen dies, chicks have been known to be able to scramble out from underneath the wings and survive. In this case, Jesus is saying he desires to shield Jerusalem from the judgment of God that's coming. But they fail to turn to him for their salvation. So he he speaks about this um, house that's going to become desolate and he's referring to the temple, which um, Scott will probably pick up on next week. We're reminded of the image in uh, Ezekiel where God's glory, which normally filled the temple, is actually leaving the temple. And Jesus, who is God come in the flesh, is God's glory come back into the temple again, only for them to reject him, and then they won't see him again, Uh, he departs. Unfortunately, they didn't uh, turn to Jesus as their Messiah, as they should. Instinctively, they should have turned to him as their Messiah, and as their Saviour, but they didn't welcome him. On Palm Sunday, they welcomed him, that same expression, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is what the people said back in chapter 21 when Jesus rode into town on a donkey. But they probably didn't quite realise what they were saying when they said blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, thinking of Jesus as their king. They didn't realise what kind of king he was. But they should have turned back to him to be able to save themselves from the coming judgement that was taken. And so we see that they miss out. And the punishment that comes uh, certainly on Jerusalem later in AD 70 uh, is the fulfilment of these prophecies. But who do we identify with in this story? Are we like the leaders in Israel? The people who uh, had massive problems but didn't turn back to God? Or are we more like the chicks that are gathered to the mother hen? The challenge remains for us to be people who spot the elephant in our own lives to see the big issues that we need to face up to and turn from. And even as application to actually talk to somebody who's kind to us about a friend who's gentle, uh, who might tell us some of the things we're doing well, but who might help us to see the things that we're blind to in our own lives. It's actually a, a challenging little process to sit down and ask someone, what do you think are the areas that I need to improve in? Well, in any case, I think that's what God wants, and that's what he's emphasising in this passage. And I think it would be good for us to pray now and ask God to help us to face this challenge, to be more mature, uh, to love him more, and serve Jesus as our Lord both now and evermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that Jesus came as the one who would shield us, From your wrath against sin, we thank you that uh, although we are hypocritical in many ways in our own lives, we need to uh, learn to practice what we preach and turn from so many um, issues of sin and uh, our shortcomings in our lives. We give you thanks that uh, you know about our sin and that Jesus is our Saviour. Father, we give you thanks that uh, we have a living hope in him because he's risen from the dead, that Jesus has achieved a victory over sin and over death. And we ask that you'd help us to see the areas in our lives that we need to confront and change from. Father, we pray that you'd help us to face up to the glaring sin that's in our heart and to turn from wicked ways, and to walk in obedience to Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for your kindness in, in calling us back to yourself in this way. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.